0: Welcome to Trinity on Tap Theology, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Victoria Lorimar. Episode three, God the Father. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. We start off the creed with a strong affirmation of faith. I believe in God, God, singular, Monotheism, the belief in a soul god, is very common today, but as the early converts to Christianity affirmed this article of faith in baptism, they were distinguishing themselves from the polytheism of much of the wider culture. In the Roman world, you were expected to worship the emperor, and there was a pantheon of Greek and Roman gods of varying degrees of authority, to which people prayed in specific circumstances. Of course, the Jews were monotheists, and Christianity grew out of Judaism. The God of Jesus is the God of Abraham. But once Gentiles started coming to faith in the early church, this emphasis on the one true God was a radical departure from their prior worldview. But there's more. Not only do Christians recognise God as the one true God, but we call God Father. Why do we do this? Because Jesus did and we know that it is appropriate for us to do so as well, as we're instructed to call God's Father in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus refers to God as my Father and your Father. We're so used to addressing God in this manner that we can lose sight of how radical it is. Father is a relational term. While God had been known as the Father of the nation of Israel as a whole, Jesus' reference to Abba, Father, shows a more personal relationship, and Scripture makes this clear to us. In John's Gospel, in the first chapter, we learn that all who receive Christ are given the right to become children of God. Paul tells the church in Rome that it is the Spirit that brings about their adoption by God and enables them to cry, Abba, Father, also. And we'll hear more on the Spirit in a later episode. So we are encouraged by Jesus to call God, Father, But God is not Father to us in quite the same way as to Jesus. Because Jesus is the Son of God by nature, whereas we are children of God by adoption, through grace. In this line of the Creed, we affirm that God is not only Father, but also Almighty. Almighty as an adjective makes us think of strength and power. And you might have heard the old adage that power corrupts, and you can probably think of lots of examples in which this is the case. So how does God's power differ from our own earthly understanding and experience of power? Let's hear what Ben has to say.
1: Presumably, uh, if someone in the ancient world refers to God's power or God's might, presumably they're paying God a compliment. Nowadays, if you, when, when you speak about power, normally it's more of an insult or a statement of suspicion, you know. Um, We speak of power dynamics and of imbalances of power in human relationships. We speak sometimes rather ominously of global powers um, in in the world. Um, The word power in Western society has come to have these pretty sinister connotations. I think that's actually a helpful problem to have because when we speak, when the Bible speaks of God, the almighty, if it means that God is stronger than anybody else. As if we've like lined up all the strong people, a a professional boxer is stronger than a child. A, A military tank is stronger than a boxer. An atomic bomb is stronger than a tank. And God is the strongest one of all. If that's what we mean, if we are ranking God alongside other things and saying God is the one who has even more power than anybody else who can defeat everybody else. Then I think that would be quite a problematic picture of God. I think actually, if if you look at the, the way the Bible speaks of God's power, we don't mean this capacity to dominate. We don't mean that God can subjugate everything else. A biblical concept of God's power, I think, is more like, it's much more closely linked to the way we think about love. Think of the power or might that a new mother has in relation to her child. Everything the child needs is going to come from the mother. The child is going to depend totally on the strength of the mother, but that is not a kind of blind That's not a power relationship in the negative way. You know what I mean? That is about nurture. It's the capacity to bring forth life. It's very significant in the creed that God's might is linked specifically to creation, right? I believe in God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth. It, it is not power over, but almost like power from underneath that capacity to bring forth life, to, to make things flourish to make things grow.
0: Acknowledging that God is almighty reminds us that God is capable of doing what seems impossible for us. But in this power, God is not like the Greek gods, who are often portrayed in their power as capricious and cruel, following their own whims and dealing with humans according to their mood. You know, Shakespeare captures this attitude in King Lear, with the Duke of Gloucester declaring that we are nothing but flies to the gods who kill us for their sport. Even though our God is almighty and we are powerless in comparison, this does not make us mere playthings, because God is not only almighty, but also trustworthy and faithful. God covenants with humans and we can rest confidently in the assurance that this commitment will stand. And the term almighty is what we call an attribute of God in theological language. The divine attributes are the qualities that belong to the very nature of God and distinguish God from us. Being attributes of God, they also apply to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. But we'll talk about the Trinity in a later episode. Now, the Apostles' Creed only mentions this one attribute, almighty, but there are many more that have been identified throughout the history of thinking about God. You might have heard of the three omnis. God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent – Omni comes from the Latin, meaning all. So these attributes refer to God as all-powerful, all-knowing, and present everywhere. We can also say that God is eternal and unchangeable. And there are also attributes of God that humans might possess to a lesser degree. So while God is perfect goodness, justice, truth, love, mercy, etc., humans can of course be good, just, truthful, loving, and merciful in their own way. Recognising God as Almighty and drawing on some of these other divine attributes reminds us just how great the gap is between us and God. It should invoke a response of reverence and awe. But more than that, though, it underscores how gracious God is in entering into relationship with us. God's words to the prophet Isaiah speak of this gap, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than yours. Yet we have this promise, according to the book of Hebrews, that Jesus, our great high priest, has entered into our human experience for himself, and therefore we can approach God with confidence. This is one of the amazing things about the Incarnation, that a God so much greater than us can meet us at our level. But more on that later. Before we close this episode, I want to address the matter of language. The fact that our traditional language for God is male is debated quite hotly in some theological circles. Feminist theologians have argued that to use exclusively male language for God, so not only father and son, but to always refer to God as He, has had an impact, both historically and today on how we view the two sexes in terms of equality. If God is seen as male, then women might be understood as not being fully in the image of God. And indeed many of the church fathers argued that this was so. Speaking of God only in male terms has conditioned us historically to think of maleness as superior to femaleness. Now you might be thinking that this is just identity politics gone crazy. We can be quite dismissive of these concerns. But it's not just a contemporary question, though. It's been asked throughout the Church's history. The 4th century theologian, Gregory of Nazianzus, one of history's most influential thinkers, he contributed a lot to our understanding of the Trinity, for example. He ridiculed the notion that people would think of God as male simply because we address God as father or son. But it's not as simple as that. We also need to consider the less obvious effects that our language has on how we subconsciously think of God and therefore how we think about gender in humans. If our language for God can be separated entirely from our understanding of God's gender, as Gregory suggests, then why are depictions of God as female usually met with such resistance? Let's get Ben's take on the matter.
1: Now, in the first place, this is quite straightforward the reason we use the terms father and son is simply because we find those terms in the Bible, right? Especially in the gospel of John where Jesus is consistently described as um, the son and where God is consistently described as his father. But this runs right through um, the, right through the gospels. When we talk about God as father, in other words, we're kind of zooming in on one particular thing that's revealed in Jesus, that Jesus relates to God as his father. Now, we do this because of the idea of revelation. Christians don't believe that we get to, like, let's all put our heads together and come up with the best idea we can think of about what God should be like. We'll have a kind of committee that can decide this, and then that committee can um, give a definition of God and name all of God's attributes, and we'll work with that. Christians don't believe that we have the capacity to discover all by ourselves or to adjudicate all by ourselves what God ought to be like. If we are to know God, God has to come and reveal who God is to us. That's the idea of revelation, that we start not with our own ideas, but with God's act of self-disclosure and the act of the, the defining act of self-disclosure is God's self-revelation in the person of Jesus and almost the first word that comes out of Jesus's mouth is father he begins to speak to God and to relate to God as a father so that's the simple part right why do we use this gendered language it's because that's the that's the language that we find in the gospel that's the language that we find on the lips of Jesus himself who is Um, the word made flesh, who is God's own self revelation. It gets more complicated at this point though, right? Because think about this. If Jesus reveals God, does that mean that any characteristic of Jesus at all is also a characteristic of God? Do you see what I'm asking? If Jesus reveals God, Does that mean you can extrapolate any aspect of Jesus kind of upward into eternity? And now that you've seen Jesus, you know exactly what God is like. Here are some examples. Jesus had a beard, according to the gospel. Does that mean that God has a beard? Jesus um, got hungry and thirsty. Do we therefore conclude because he reveals God? Well, God must be hungry and thirsty sometimes as well. Jesus got angry with the money changes in the temple. Does that mean up there in eternity, God sometimes gets a bit moody? Do, Do you see the problem here? Jesus reveals God, but that is not to say that every single characteristic of Jesus is a direct one for one equivalent with who God is. Jesus reveals God, and yet God remains God. God remains distinct from Jesus in his humanness, in his creatureliness. When Jesus referred to God as his father, he wasn't thinking like a pagan. He wasn't talking about sex and procreation. What did he mean? He, he must have been using that term father as a more like a minimal, minimalistic concept. Not that the word father entails all the things that it ordinarily means for us but it must've included some of those things. It presumably referred to when, when he said that he was the son of the father, he must've meant that the, that God was his source, his origin, just as a human being comes from their parents, Jesus comes from God. He must've meant that. And he must've, he he, he must've been thinking of uh, as well of, his continuing dependence on God, that nurturing superiority, I guess, that, that nurturing relationship that a parent has to their child. And Jesus talked about his own relation to God in that kind of way. So the way the ancient Christians thought about this is when we use the, these terms father and son, we need to, the word they use was we need to purify our minds of most of the ordinary physical connotations of those words. Specifically, we need to purify our minds of anything to do with gender and the body and think instead of God as the source of Jesus's life and Jesus as the one who comes from God and depends on God.
0: Ben argues that the maleness of Jesus and his use of the word father aren't statements about the gender of God. What's Alice's perspective?
2: well i love the english language it's great uh, it's about the only language i speak in fact <laughs> but english has a problem supposing i want to in effect speak of something as personal in other words uh, we're talking about something someone who's able to enter into a relationship with me basically english only has two ways of doing this you use he you use she basically these are the only ways you have of personalizing something and Christians know that we relate to God I mean it's so important and so we talk about God as it or something like that we're stuck we, we lose this vital insight so for me we, we have to learn to live with this problem it's a problem other languages don't necessarily have but English does so what we need to do is say this is a limitation of our language it struggles to do justice to the reality of God and we we can try and find some way round this, sure, but the important thing is we don't lose what this critically important uh, use of personal pronouns is pointing to, namely, we can relate to the God who created this world and redeemed us, not as an object, but like we relate to our best friends and those we love. And that's a really important insight. We need to hang on to that, even if it causes linguistic problems.
0: Alistair highlights the personal aspect of the pronouns we use, even as we acknowledge the limitations of our language when it comes to gender. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of the debate. There are various proposals for different names to give God, apart from Father, Son and Spirit, but they usually have their own challenges from a theological perspective. I would encourage you, though, to reflect on the power of language To remember that both male and female are created in God's image. To acknowledge that God is genderless because gender itself is a creation of God. And to consider the many descriptions of God in Scripture that we might associate more with the feminine than the masculine. The idea of wisdom, for example. Or the image of God as a mother hen gathering her chicks. Language shouldn't be a barrier to people coming to know God, relating to God, understanding the hope they have in God. And we should listen when people express a sense of exclusion. If we are dismissive, then many underrepresented groups will continue to go unheard. And this is a reminder for us as well that all theological language is analogy. It can't be any other way. We can never capture God's infinite nature using our own limited language and understanding. All of the theological reflection we do, therefore, has to come from this place of humility, an awareness that God is always larger than our descriptions and understanding can reach. What do you think? In what ways does the reality of God exceed our capacity to explain in words? This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.